The reading for tonight is from Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, through chapter 2, verse 4. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. By the seventh day God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made heaven and earth. The word of the Lord. I don't know how you feel hearing that scripture, but it makes me feel kind of embarrassed for everyone involved. Like, what was God thinking? Giving humans dominion, sway, even the responsibility to be good stewards? However you read it, caretakers or masters, the story has definitely amped up the human's already overblown tendency toward inflated self-regard. Some people point right here to the text that Barb read as the starting point for the lethal, myopic, human-centeredness that has brought us to the ecological crisis we are in. So close to having dominated the world to death, stewarded in environmental disaster. Or if the actual story isn't the villain, then it's the interpretation of it adopted by the Western Christian empire. This foundational conviction that God gave humans creation to do with as they please, more or less. Like God planned all of this wildly fantastic, mysterious, you know that science estimate that 86% of the species on land and 91% of the species li that live underwater have yet to be discovered by humans? And at this point, probably never will be. Like, God planned all of this to serve man's purpose? This conviction is firmly embedded in the history of Christian doctrine, that man, I'm using the exclusive term purposefully, is not really part of nature. 
because he is made in the image of God. This seems crazy now, doesn't it? If only man bears the image of God, then the image of God must be like something anyone in their right mind would want to avoid. Some putrid stain like the power to be massively destructive, violent, and selfish to a degree that no other animal can attain to? I mean, yes, grizzly bears are violent, but they don't build factory farms or suffocate baby chicks by stuffing them in cages where they can't move or breathe or ever see light. Apparently, wolverines can be described as greedy and selfish, but they don't start wars or build concentration camps. There are natural forces that can do a lot of damage, earthquakes, volcanoes, but in terms of a species, we are the worst. I suppose it's possible that that wasn't quite as clear to the founders of Christian doctrine, who embedded anthropocentrism into the heart of it. First, God makes light, light, and land, and water, and trees, and plants, and birds, and animals, and God sees that it's good, very good, and blesses all of it. The splendid fairy wren, orchids, tigers, peonies. I mean, if you hold one of those beautiful, colorful, or sweetly fragrant living things next to a naked human with their strange appendages and orifices and odors, I mean, which one seems more like the crowning glory of creation? I'm not saying human bodies aren't beautiful, but just maybe not more beautiful. Animals and plants don't buy and sell. They didn't devise capitalism. Bonobos, I'm sure you've heard, live in peaceful matriarchies filled with empathy and sensuality. They form lifelong friendships. They generally solve problems through sex, not violence, and they're all bisexual. Did you know that beavers keep pets? Like insects, often grasshoppers, they hold them in their little paws. Octopi not only have large brains in their heads, they have brains in their arms and more brains in their suckers. They can open jars from the inside and out. They can camouflage themselves to look like poisonous snakes and transform their shape to fit through an opening the size of a small paperback. To say, get out of an aquarium and find their way back to the sea. This has happened. Ravens fall in love. Monkeys address inequality. Wolves miss each other. Elephants grieve for their dead. Plants learn. Trees communicate. I hear that mushrooms may save the world. The urgency of us acknowledging that we are not better or more important than everything else has never been more apparent. Animal studies has become sort of a big thing in theology for this reason. And the Bible is full of images of non-human animals 
and non-human elements of nature that have personal relationships with God. The land is a central character in the Torah. And its relationship to God and the people of God is a crucial part of the narrative. Trees fight alongside David's army. Deborah rejoices in gratitude to the stars that help her defeat her enemies. The forests applaud in the Bible when the exiles return to the land, not because humans are the most important creature, but because humans, animals, plants, and land desire each other and depend on each other for well-being. And I love this. Stephen Moore, a biblical scholar who I admire and have for a long time, wrote this essay, essay recently where he observes that the Jesus of John's gospel is not or not solely a human being. The God-man is also a human animal, a lamb, a vegetable, a vine, vegetable byproducts, bread, and a door. And inorganic energy, namely electromagnetic radiation, light. Descriptive names that he says that are no more, no less metaphoric than Son of God. And though Sun Christology has commanded center stage since the fourth century, the global ecological crisis, he says, impels us to shift attention from Sun Christology to animal Christology vegetal Christology, and inorganic Christology. I mean, he's always been a little bit out there. But I say, bring it on. Whatever can help us see the intrinsic worth of non-human life, whatever can help us commit to caring for the well-being of this enormous, utterly interdependent web of complex life. Indigenous religions have always seen it this way. In the Bible, God says, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. But even if our forebears read this and thought, well, there you go, chimpanzee, orchid, bonobo, tiger, look at me, not you, I'm in God's image. Do we have to read it that way? I mean, technically, it doesn't really say that the rest of creation wasn't also in God's image. It doesn't rule out that possibility. Maybe the author just highlights this human part because they knew of all species, humans would have the most issues with their self-esteem. God blesses the human, loves the human, wants the human to know this deeply. But to be fair, God also blesses the sea monsters and the birds and every kind of creeping thing, bacteria, nematodes, flagella. What if humans hadn't come to believe that God gave all the other species to them to eat, own, enslave, or make money off of? And of course, it's not just non-human animals that get excluded from being the bearers of the image of God in the history of Western Christianity. Indigenous peoples, black and brown people, women, 
have been treated as if they don't possess the image of God quite like European males. So maybe even all human oppression, maybe all reckless misuse of God's creation begins here with God saying, let us make man in our image. Is it possible to read this passage in Genesis differently? Of course. Is it too late to read it differently? Never. I mean, that's me trying to be optimistic. But I'm pretty sure if we're going to survive, if we're going to stop being so destructive, we need to reread our foundational narratives. The anthropocentric, racist, colonialist, misogynist, patriarchal, homophobic readings that have held sway need to be undone. And they can be. And they are being. I mean, this probably wasn't as clear to the people who founded Christian theology. But it is very clear now. Humans are just a blip in the life of this galaxy. The Earth has been around for four billion years. Humans, 200,000. Scientists predict it might be another six billion years before our sun burns out. But it's highly doubtful humans will last that long, possibly not even another century, I'm sure you've heard. So the Earth was made for humans? We're a tiny part of its enormous story. And the animals and species that will outlive us, they'll do so in spite of us. Certainly not because we did a good job of looking after them. So how do we read what is good news in this story? Is there? I think there's a lot, actually. But you kind of have to look at it when they were composed and what were they were written next to. They were composed after the Hebrew people's lives had been devastated by the Babylonian Empire. For hundreds of years, the Hebrew people believed that God would be powerful enough to protect them from harm. But that vision was totally crushed when the Babylonian Empire invaded them and took them captive and took them away from everything they knew. And the empire's stories threatened to subsume their stories. So during the captivity, they tried to get it together, to get their stories down, to rehearse and know the narratives that they're going to tell and claim the stories of their genesis, which are clearly made as a counter-narrative to the empire's narrative. In the beginning, the Babylonians said there were two gods, a male and a female, who mated and had children, who apparently bothered them because they decided to kill the children. But the children get wind of the plot, and acting quickly, they kill the father. And the mother, Tiamat, rages and rages. She is sort of a sea monster, this embodiment of primordial chaos. So the kids decide one of them has to kill their mother. They choose Marduk to try. And he's successful. Or if he's successful, they say his reward will be a royal city and a royal palace, where he will be supreme 
unquestioned leader forever. And Marduk does succeed in killing his mother. The story describes the killing vividly and bloodily. He rips her body apart, and it's out of her ripped apart corpse that the world is created. Babylon, the empire, was built as Marduk's prize for the murder, and he and his siblings move in. But they soon realize that to keep this great city clean and tidy and running well involves tasks that they feel like is below their divine dignity. So they produce a new creature to do these tasks out of the corpse of Marduk's stepfather. Human beings are created as servants of the gods to keep the city clean. Super violent story. The city is the center of the world, and the king and his palace is the embodiment of God. The Hebrew narrative is so different. In Genesis 1, God speaks, says, let there be, and then there is. And it seems so gentle in comparison. There's no titanic, destructive, terrible battles. The, la the lack of violence is almost astounding in comparison to the Babylonian myths. It's all creation, not battle. God is super creative and not competitive at all. It's like God doesn't want to be, be, above, be alone above everything. It's like God wants companionship. It's like God loves the world into being. God makes a human, not out of the blood of a dead corpse, but out of the ground with God's hands and gives the human fish and food and a lush garden to live in. The human isn't merely a servant created to keep the city tidy, doing the work that God doesn't want to do. It's like God involves the human in God's work, brings the animals to the human to see what the human will name them. God isn't a violent tyrant concerned with keeping their glory all to themselves. God makes the human in God's image. Maybe the point of the God's image thing is God's generosity, God's non-competitive creativity, not human superiority, but God's desire to create a peaceable world. The image of God maybe then isn't about something being superior, but about something that is able to share create peaceably, include non-competitively. For a brief moment, the possibility for creation seems so lovely. I feel like the evidence for our complete failure, though, has never been more complete. But actually, as will become apparent in next Sunday's text, spoiler alert, there must have been some pretty good indication already when the texts were written 3,000 years ago that humans would in some sense fail or make pretty consequential bad decisions, choose violence, choose separation. Russell will handle all that next week. 
But I mean, with or without the stories of the fall, I'm sure it's never been hard to see that humans often tend to elevate self-interest over relationship and overestimate our importance compared to the rest of life. But maybe there's something about our particular form of consciousness that, without very careful tending, leads us to that. But can we make amends? Can we stop being the most destructive species ever? Can we at least start walking in that direction? When we were struggling as a family recently about whether or not to put our cat to sleep, a friend trying to help said, remember, he's just an animal. And I mean, I really appreciated what they were trying to do. Give us freedom, and, and pets are a weird distortion of things, but it does strike me that we might want to get away from a sense that we can devalue anything because it's just an animal, you know? Because it has become so clear where our hard-to-shake belief that we are somehow separate, higher, not just animals, has led to. I'm thinking that the image of God may be more aspirational. To bear the image of this non-violent, non-competitive, generous-sharing, super-creative creator, a sort of urgent aspiration, if we'd like to remain a part of creation. We need to ramp up our love and attention and respect for what is other. I mean, if this means holding your cat in your lap and looking it in its eyes and loving it, I mean, I think that's an okay start. Derrida, I mean, Derrida makes an animal turn, some of his admirers in the animal studies like to call it, while undergoing the gaze of his cat. He begins to lament the binaries we've created between human animals and other animals, takes on the ethics of animal slaughter, the implications of human-centeredness. And think of Australia. The prime minister is able to continue to defend the fossil fuel industry after such massive destruction, maybe because only 27 people died. But a billion non-human animals have died in the fires. A billion. A lot of people are feeling the callousness of this. I think that's hopeful. Sometimes people are critical of other people's readiness to send money to save koalas or orphaned elephants. But I don't think we should dismiss anyone's love of animals as irrelevant or too sentimental. I have this quote taped to the wall over my desk. It's from an essay by Jake Erickson, a scholar who some of you probably know. It says, fragments of care often become the sources for deep hope and deep societal change. Just fragments of care. Somehow this seemed so hopeful to me because fragments of care might be the most we're capable of sometimes. 
But what if these little fragments, any bitty little fragments from you and me and sentimental grandmas who love their cats and heck, NRA members who love their hunting dogs, and way bigger fragments of care from climate activists and people working with immigrants and refugees at the border, but what if all this, all these big and little and medium-sized fragments could really be the source for radical societal change. Human civilization is, is the result of the stories we've been told. So certainly, storytelling can change the course of history. We need some radical imagination. The 2020s haven't been written yet. Maybe we can decide to help make them revolutionary.